Do you mind talking to see? Testing one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 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 nine, eight, seven, six, five. Mike is working. Did you move the Minecraft book from behind him? Yeah. Oh, wait. I'm it's gone? <laughs> I'm recording on the TV on the screen. I'm recording the audio. Say it again. Audio or something. Audio one, two, okay, three, good. four, five. <clears throat> So basically I'm asking most people the same questions and then I'm just like going to weave the narrative sure. together. Um, but I wanted to like introduce all the different groups. So if you just start by talking about what the Answer Coalition is and how you and the organization became involved in the embassy protection. Yeah, the Answer Coalition uh, organized a very large set of protests on March 16th, 2019 in response to the attempted overthrow of the Maduro government by the U.S. along with their puppet Juan Guaido. And that was the largest demonstrations to date uh, in support of Venezuela and in opposition to the coup. In fact, the demands were no to the coup, no to sanctions. Uh, we made the point that the Venezuelan people and only the Venezuelan people should be uh, the ones determining the destiny of Venezuela. So at March 16th, it was kind of a high point for the anti-war movement. It was a sign that there was going to be a response. That was important because the Maduro government had been so thoroughly demonized that even people who were traditionally progressive and anti-war or against the CIA and certainly against Donald Trump uh, had been mute, had been silent as the Trump administration tried to carry out this coup d'etat against the elected government in Venezuela. Right after March 16th, uh, we met with other people who were partners in that demonstration. Uh, we talked about the Venezuelan embassy was going to be uh, a place of struggle, in fact, because it was clear that the U.S. government breaking relations with Venezuela uh, might try to uh, force the Venezuelan diplomats out. We asked, uh, let's say, we discussed with the, with the Venezuelan embassy, could we start to hold events inside the embassy? We could have symposiums, we could have art shows, we could have educational events, we could live stream uh, people talking about uh, the efforts by the U.S. to carry out regime change, not just in Venezuela, but against Latin American progressive governments for the past decades. And so that's how it all began. We started to hold events inside the embassy. And describe what those first few weeks before the actual attempted military takeover in Venezuela, what was the atmosphere like around the embassy? It kind of became like a people's embassy for various movements and groups. Just expand on that, that period you were talking about. The, the Washington, D.C. peace and anti-war and progressive community started gathering at the Venezuelan embassy uh, to hold these kind of events, and you could feel a buzz. Things were going on there all the time. Uh, we were using it as a place uh, to do outreach because we were using social media. People were starting to come. Uh, in fact, on, on April 10th, uh, we had a teach-in there, and I remember we made an appeal for people around the country. If you're retired, if you have a few 
uh, weeks of vacation, if you've been laid off, if you have any availability, come to Washington and join us in the activities here at the Venezuelan Embassy. We were making a point that the U.S. government that was demanding uh, that the Venezuelans install a puppet government and thus seize the diplomatic compound of Venezuela, that they were doing this in the name of the American people. We needed to make it clear that they were doing it without our consent. Mm -hmm. And just talk more about ANSWER specifically and why what is the organization and and why is it so dedicated to the anti-war issue and, and specifically Venezuela? Well, the Answer Coalition was formed three days after September 14th. I'm sorry. The Answer Coalition was formed three days after September 11th on September 14th, 2001. We immediately began organizing against what we knew would be a war drug by the U.S. government using the 9-11 terrorist attacks as a pretext. We were an organization that organized most of the massive uh, demonstrations during the run-up to the Iraq War and after the Iraq War here in Washington, D.C. and around the country. Uh, we had chapters all around the country. We still do. We have about 30 chapters. But for the Answer Coalition, we think of, of peace as not simply the absence of war, that peace is also the absence of justice. And so when we look at what the U.S. government policy is in the Middle East, we can see it's clearly not uh, just. It's clearly a, a, a policy that's designed to rob the people of the Middle East of sovereignty. Well, it's not just the Middle East. It's also in, it's also in Latin America. The U.S. has considered Latin America to be its backyard uh, ever since the Monroe Doctrine. And whenever a progressive government has come into uh, power, whether it was our Benz in 1954, the government in Dominican Republic in 1965, Grenada in 1983, uh, Cuba, of course, the U.S. has done everything in its power to topple those regimes because the U.S. only wants puppets in Latin America, which U.S. imperialism considers to be its backyard. Mm -hmm. So our, from our point of view, uh, the anti-war movement, the peace movement, has to be a movement for justice, which means to oppose the efforts by the U.S. government to rob the people of Latin America, in this case Venezuela, of their basic core right to sovereignty. And after the April 30th coup, failed military takeover in Caracas, the atmosphere surrounding the embassy completely changed. What was that like? Well, it was quite clear that Juan Guaido was failing. He failed on January 23rd. That led to nothing. The U.S. thought the military would break apart and that the Venezuelans would be happy. They weren't. They stayed united. He failed again on February 23rd at the Colombian-Venezuelan border with the humanitarian shipment, so-called. That failed. On April 30th, there was an armed uprising. Again, that failed. Juan Guaido was failing. Uh, and so the effort to seize different parts of the Venezuelan, uh, Venezuelan properties and assets around the country and around the world intensified because there had to be some victory for Juan Guaido. There had to be a feather in the cap. Momentum was going all in the direction of the, of the Maduro government. And so we uh, could see after April 30th that the pro-Guaido forces, who are really just in extension, it's an intelligence operation run by the United States, by the Pentagon, we believe, by the CIA, we believe. Uh, they were making a plan to stop the progressive activities at the Venezuelan embassy, to be able to seize control of the embassy. And of course, because it's illegal uh, for, uh, for 
anyone to attack a diplomatic compound according to the Vienna Convention, including governments, including governments that are hosting uh, the diplomatic compound, uh, we witnessed something really extraordinary, which was the State Department police, the Secret Service, the Metropolitan Police Department, all these police agencies in Washington, D.C., knew that they could not go in and seize the embassy of Venezuela. It's the rightful owner, the legal owner of this building was the Venezuelan government, recognized by the U.N. They couldn't do that. So how to get the people inside out? Well, they, they, they leased the operation. They outsourced it to a group of thugs, uh, the Juan Guaido supporters, who carried out a siege against the embassy of Venezuela. They carried out verbal and physical assaults against people inside and outside the embassy who were standing uh, for sovereignty for Venezuela. And of course, they carried out vandalism against the building and all under the watchful eye of these different U.S. police agencies. Clearly, uh, they were using the Guaido thugs as a proxy force because the U.S. Uh, police and military couldn't do the thing that they wanted to do, which was to evict the rightful owners of the building or their guests from the embassy. Many people have pointed out that the U.S. government used the same tactics it employs against the Venezuelan people, against the people who were ultimately stuck inside of the Venezuelan embassy here. Can you talk about that? Well, there was a certain macabre poetry to the tactic of laying siege to the embassy in attempting to deprive the people who were there as the invited guests of the lawful owners of the building, that would be us, the Embassy Protection Collective, from getting food uh, or other things needed to sustain life. They laid siege to it. The poetic, macabre poetry is that the U.S. government is doing precisely the same thing to the entire Venezuelan nation, trying to use food and medicine, a blockade of a country, uh, to, to deny its citizens the right to live, using those same tactics uh, in order to topple the government. So, yes, uh, we could see that the U.S. government was doing to this... Even the electricity. They turned off the lights as, they, as Venezuelans are, were experiencing blackouts during the same time period. And the Venezuelan government said the U.S. was sabotaging the electric grid in Venezuela. They turned off the lights. They also, these thugs from Guaido, broke into the building. They sabotaged the water system. So not only were there no lights, but for at least a period of time, there was no water. Again, laying siege, kind of imposing by military means uh, sanctions against the embassy itself and against the people inside. A lot of attention is paid to the people who were on the inside of the embassy throughout this entire struggle, but there was a whole another movement on the outside every day, and answer played a really major role in, in making sure there's a presence of people on the outside to support the people on the inside. Just talk more about Answer's role uh, during this siege. How is Answer able to, you were busing people even in from New York, I think, right? Yeah, and indeed. We had, the Answer Coalition had people inside the embassy, and we were all inside the embassy until at a certain point the siege was begun. So those of us who left uh, to go to work could not come back at a certain point. So then there was the Embassy Protection Collective inside the embassy, and on the outside there were those of us who had been in the embassy and others who were drawn to show support for it. The Answer Coalition, because we have a fairly large organizational apparatus, uh, made the decision that we would start to mobilize people from all over the East Coast, the South, the near Midwest, and we had buses coming 
and carloads of people, car caravans coming, so that uh, there were sort of reinforcements, demonstrations that were large in character because the mob was using intimidation tactics against people on the outside. We needed to have us, we needed more numbers. And so Saturday after Saturday, we'd have large scale protests outside the embassy. But even during the week, uh, when people weren't necessarily coming from other cities, the Answer Coalition was mobilizing people in the DC metro area to be there all day, all night, to show support for those who were inside. Jackson's visit to the embassy because at that point there were only five people left inside. They did have a lot of food and water that could have lasted a while and I think the U.S. authorities realized that. Um, and then there was this dramatic scene when Reverend Jackson came and was almost assaulted by these people on the outside and the next day the U.S. decides to go in and raid. What did you think of that? I think uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson's visit to the Venezuelan embassy in the late, later period of this drama was in fact a tipping point because the people inside had succeeded with the help of people outside to have enough food and enough supplies to keep going. They could keep going. Reverend Jackson was the first really noted personality, someone who had real credentials and legitimacy uh, from either the, uh, the civil rights movement or the broader labor movement or the peace movement, who came and showed his solidarity with the people inside. And, you know, Jesse Jackson uh, means something. He was with Dr. King the night that he was shot uh, in, in, um, in Memphis. Sorry, the night he was shot in Memphis in 1968 on April 4th. He was a young man then, but he's a longtime historic leader of the civil rights movement. He came to bring food to the people in the embassy. Now, if Jesse Jackson did that, and he did, then it starts to open the door for other people who are also very well-known, big personalities, uh, to, to come to the embassy of Venezuela. That's important because the media has attempted to demonize Maduro and those in the embassy protection collective as simply apologists for a dictator. In other words, to marginalize the entire solidarity effort with the people of Venezuela. Jesse Jackson was starting to break that sort of blockade or that image. And I think that uh, the government realized the people inside had food. Jesse Jackson meant that his arrival meant that more uh, support was coming from the outside. Thus, the, uh, the Embassy Protection Collective could have gone on and on and on. And in fact, the relationship of forces was now changing to the advantage of those who are the guests of the Venezuelan government. Mm -hmm. Were you surprised by how violent they were with him? Or those images, if you can just, they were pretty stunning images. Well, they, he tried to, he, he walked, as many of us did, peacefully towards the building to bring a small uh, sort of gathering of food. And he was physically assaulted. The people who were with him were physically assaulted. You can see it on the videotape, the clashes. I mean, if they do this to Jesse Jackson, uh, he's an elderly gentleman at this point. He's a historic leader of the black civil rights movement. If they feel so emboldened to do that kind of violence and, and threats against Jesse Jackson, of course they would do it to lesser figures. And in fact, they did it. They did it all the time. But it shows the character of these people. It shows their thuggish 
a nature. People might call them in American media pro-democracy. Uh, I would say, if anything, they lean towards fascistic tactics, as evidenced by what happened with Doctor, uh, with as ha- as evidenced by what happened with Reverend Jackson. Yeah, with the police standing right there and, and just letting it happen. Oh, and the police were spectators. Like, go for it, boys. I don't know if you knew anything about that Mateo character. I I know. Do you want to comment on him at all? Because one of the things he's that, an engineer, right? Well, he claimed that he was homeless. Yeah. And then he, it it seems that he has like military ties. Yeah. But I don't know if you. Well, he's, the he's the strange. one the Juan Guaido operation from the beginning. It started small with this guy Mateo and a couple other individuals. Mateo posed as a penniless homeless person who was sitting on the stoop outside the embassy. Uh, we suspected from the beginning that he was an operative, an operative. When he looked so pathetic on the outside, uh, it was basically a cover so that he wouldn't be pushed away or so that you know he wouldn't be identified or targeted. But he was there to set up intelligence. And then he gathered intelligence. He became an important figure throughout this entire operation. He was obviously had some operational authority within the larger operation. And again, people should know, everything that happened there was done with military precision by the Guaido thugs. I mean, they had, they had commanders, they had people who were their leaders, they, the leaders signaled the larger group of people. If they needed to move left, they moved left, they needed to move right, if they needed to, to, to disperse and uh, block entrances, all of that done was done with leadership. So it's an organized operation. Mateo was obviously a part of that. Mm-hmm. If that's his name. Yeah. Well, Matthew Berwick, I guess, is his name. That's the one that we found. But um, how? in what ways did the, the struggle to protect the embassy reinvigorate the anti-war movement in the United States? Well, you know, this was a real struggle. Uh, what happened at the Embassy Protection uh, Collective and our oper- and our I'm sorry what happened at the Venezuelan Embassy was a real struggle, a real struggle because sometimes people go to a protest and you know they hold signs they listen to some speeches they march a little while. This was a day in day out confrontation between the U.S. government, its military and police. Uh, authorities and tr- forces, thugs who were sort of working with them against peaceful anti-war protesters. And there was the use of violence and the threat of violence and the siege and the deprivation of food and the deprivation of electricity and water in order to defeat this anti-war movement and its work. That made it a struggle. And you could see as each day went by and people were challenged with new problems to solve, new threats, they became stronger. Uh, courage is um, a social phenomena, not simply an individual phenomena. People think, oh, so-and-so is very brave. Well, bravery and courage is something that we learn and it's something that's collective and it's something social. And this experience uh, forged a lot of bonds between the people inside the embassy and the people who are on the outside who are also enduring so many attacks from these thugs. And the fact that it went on day after day, then week after week, and it went on for a long time, 
uh, I think had the effect of creating an organic community of resistance right here in the nation's capital. Mm -hmm. And what lessons do you think we learned about, I don't know if you want to comment on the various groups that came together and how it functioned, what you think about that and, and where to take the energy from here. How, how do we take, because we're not always going to have a struggle like that. But how do we keep that energy and keep those relationships? Well, there was a, a de facto coalition that came into being for the Embassy Protection Collective as the days and weeks went on. Um, I'm in, with the Answer Coalition. I'm also a Marxist. I'm a socialist. We were coming to the anti-war movement with a particular anti-imperialist uh, vantage point. Others... Uh, there's the code, there's code Pink, Medea Benjamin, and that group of people who I would not say are ideologically socialist, but are committed peace and anti-war activists who have time after time, day after day, month after month, year after year, uh, been sort of holding up the banner of peace and against war and at great physical and personal risk. Uh, there was the organization Popular Resistance, I don't actually know exactly how to characterize them ideologically, but very progressive, very anti-imperialist. Then there were many individuals, some of whom were religious, some of whom were uh, simply veterans of the peace movement. Uh, many of them were very young students who, for whom this was their very first activity. There was a group called Students Against Imperialism from George Washington campus nearby. Uh, they were Why those Juan Guaido's university. Uh, it was a very eclectic group in a way, but it became less eclectic in the sense that we were having to work together. We did work together. We worked very well together. We stood with each other. We were listening to each other. When you have a coalition, you're going to have people with different emphasis, different orientation, different ideas. And we were all listening to each other. We treated each other with a great deal of respect. I think it was a model for coalition building. Uh, and again, creating an organic community of resistance based on people who may not be ideologically in the same spot, but who share a common values and certainly a common denominator in the sense that we believe that the people of Venezuela and only they can determine their destiny and that we understood clearly that the Trump administration was violating the Vienna Convention by trying to uh, seize and ultimately then seizing the diplomatic compound of another government. Mm -hmm. And then just lastly, if you can comment about the overall, gen the general failure of the coup policy, how, how why, why you think having the movement here was important to defeating that, or just how you would blend the, the narrative of the embassy with what we've seen progress since. It's not possible to understand the struggle around the Venezuelan embassy in Georgetown abstracted from the real political context of what was happening. Juan Guaido's coup was failing time after time after time. Juan Guaido needed a feather in his cap. The coup makers needed a morale boost. The way they thought they could do that was by seizing the diplomatic compound in Washington and proclaiming that they now were the rightful representatives of Venezuela right here in Washington, D.C., in the nation's capital with the Venezuelan embassy. And by the 
inability of that group to seize the embassy when they tried to seize it in mid-April and to see it, in fact, become an epic struggle between those who were in the invited guests of the sovereign government who refused to give up and refused to give in because we were the invited guests of the Venezuelan government. It denied Juan Guaido that feather, that momentum that they desperately needed when their coup was falling apart. And that's why ultimately uh, the police moved in. That's ultimately why this compound was seized in an act of international piracy because they were losing. And in fact, they seized it too late. The momentum, in the, uh, the momentum for Juan Guaido was already spent. So their much hoped for feather in the cap for Juan Guaido's failed coup, it was denied to them by this really strong, courageous, brave act of international solidarity between a coalition of people in Washington, D.C. who believe in peace and justice. Perfect. See, I think it was really important to to have you speak because part of what I want to do is make sure